Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, let's get back to Queen's Park for a moment with Colin DeMello, with uh, Bonnie Crombie, of course, officially registering her campaign for the Ontario Liberal leadership. On that note of Ontario leadership, Doug Ford's time as Ontario Premier has shown a lot, and not a lot of it is looked at very fondly by many people. And with inflation on the rise, an op-ed in the Toronto Star by our guest Armin Alnizian makes an excellent point that workers don't need to lose their jobs in this process. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's go back to Queen's Park for just a second. Uh, and uh, the fact that, of course, the Ontario Liberal Party is looking for a new leader. Now, they've already set the, the, the playbook in play here as to how they're going to do this. And it's going to be December before they actually come up with a winner on this. Uh, but it took an interesting twist uh, earlier this week when uh, Mississauga Mayor Bonnie Crombie made it official and uh, has said that she is going to be a candidate. Well, immediately that also made her a target, not just for the, con- the progressive conservatives, but for the liberals that want to take her out of and, and actually, you know, not ha- have her be the leader of that party. But that's politics, I guess. I'm going to bring uh, Colin DeMello into the conversation about this. Colin, of course, is uh, Queens Park Bureau Chief for Global, Global News, and he joins us here on the program uh, to discuss this. Uh, always a pleasure. Colin, thank you so much for the time today. Great to have you with us. Hey, good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me. You, you've been covering this stuff for a long, long time at Queen's Park, and you know that you know politics can be a, a, a messy game sometimes. Uh, Bonnie Crombie was somebody that people were respecting, and you know, there's, there's an outstanding mayor from Mississauga. The people there just love her. She just got reelected, of course, a little while ago. Uh, but the minute that she makes it official that she wants to be the Liberal leader, uh, the people that want that job are the ones who are taking shots at her, or at, at her right now. Uh, and uh, I, first of all, that's the process, and we're all used to that right now. Uh, I, is the first test here for Bonnie Crombie to see whether or not she can withstand the heat from her own party? Well, well, yes. I mean, she comes into this race really uh, as the perceived front runner, right? I mean, it, I, I had a conversation with a pollster yesterday who indicated, look, she has strong support in the 905 in Mississauga and Brampton. And and that really is what any uh, political party in Ontario needs in order to uh, be able to form a majority government. Certainly the Ford progressives have snapped up all 12 seats in, in that uh, Western 905 region. And Bonnie Crombie, you know, poses a challenge to them. So you know, on its face, a lot of people look at Bonnie Crombie as a serious contender, as somebody who would be able to challenge the progressive conservatives in the next general election. But before that, though, she's got to get through this entire party process. And, and remember, the people who are voting for the Ontario liberal leader are liberals. These are insiders. These are people who, you know, care about the future of their party and are looking at this leadership race as a way to shape um, you know, some of the policies that the party will actually run on in a general election. And, you know, even before stepping into the race and now just as she steps into the race, Bonnie Crombie has had at least two uh, comments that she's made that have, you know, left a lot of liberals wondering, is she a liberal liberal or is she kind of a conservative liberal? And a lot of people are wondering where exactly she stands and her opponents are rightly capped, uh, capitalizing on that because they're looking to kind of take a little bit of the shine off of Bonnie Crombie and and hopefully, you know, put some of the attention on themselves. Yeah, and one of those comments, of course, uh, was that, uh, as, as you say, she was quite overt about her saying, I want to move it back uh, to 
to the center or maybe even just a little right of center, uh, which caused an awful lot of pushback, I guess, from some of the liberals. And she said, well, that's the secret sauce. I'm not so sure some people were happy with that metaphor, but she tried to backtrack on that. But isn't that the essence of, of the, the infighting that's gone on in the Liberal Party for quite some time? And I, even going to, to, back to the days, I guess, of, of Kathleen Wynne, Colin, where a lot of liberals were uneasy with the way that the, the Kathleen Wynne was moving the party, way they think, way too far to the left. Uh, is this a correction that Bonnie Crombie is talking about, or is this a, a huge philosophical shift that they're not going to be comfortable with? Well, you're right. I mean, there is a question about the future of the party. It did start with Kathleen Wynne. Uh, you know, in the 2018, in the run-up to the 2018 election, uh, they realized that a lot of their support in the center and the right had kind of evaporated. And so the liberals, you know, started going more to the left, to NDP territory, in order to kind of uh, gain new support and gain new voters. Uh, they, in 2018, decided to run an $8 billion de uh, deficit after balancing the budget uh, just in order to, you know, spend on all kinds of things to, to court new supporters. And so that's where we kind of find you know, the Ontario Liberal Party, right? What is the party? It, is, it, it has gone through a bit of an identity crisis. And you've got some people like Nate Erskine-Smith, who's, um, you know, a bit younger, 38. He's uh, you know, quite idealistic and, and, you know, believes that the party should be more on the left side of the spectrum. And, and Bonnie Crombie is kind of taking a look at this from the perspective of, okay, well, what will get us into government? And she said being just on the left isn't necessarily going to get us in. But she said she's in the center because she's uh, operated from the center as the mayor of Mississauga. And she believes that that's where the majority of the Ontario voting population actually is. They see themselves on the center and she believes maybe a little bit on the center right. Uh, so, yes, there's a battle for the soul and the future of where the Ontario Liberal Party is going to go. And, and there are some, there's a push-pull in terms of, you know, where to take the party next. And, and that's why Bonnie Crombie is, is kind of taking this heat uh, because, you know, it seems like a lot of people are kind of positioning themselves as being anti-Doug Ford. And Bonnie Crombie is saying, well, no, I'm, I'm not going to position myself as being anti-anybody. I'm just going to position myself as being, you know, someone to everyone or something to everyone uh, to court as much support as possible. Yeah, the old big tent right in the middle of the political spectrum. Mm -hmm. That's it. That that was their mantra, wasn't it, for the longest time? But I, I, we got lots of time between now and December when they pick a leader, I guess, to try to analyze all this stuff. But from a philosophical standpoint, though, Colin, I mean, if the liberals want to get back uh, where they were before and, and 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 gain some of that support, are they really going to drain more support from the NDP, or do they have to start picking away at Doug Ford's popularity? Well, that's the thing with the Ontario Liberals. I mean, they they kind of sit in that middle where they have to pick from both sides, right? And so, like the NDP, according to some of the recent polls, the NDP and the Liberals are currently neck and neck in terms of uh, popular support, even though the Liberals don't have a leader and the NDP do have a leader in Marit Stiles. Uh, so it goes to show you that, I mean, that support has kind of gone back to the Liberals a little bit. In the last general election in 2022, the Liberals actually had more votes than the NDP, but their vote wasn't efficient enough in all of the ridings, so they didn't win as many uh, actual ridings. So there is a base level of support, uh, but uh, you know, it seems to me that Crombie, anyway, is trying to chip away at some of those people who might be dissatisfied with Premier Doug Ford, right? People who might have been, um, you know, middle of the road conservatives, or people who uh, could find themselves a little bit more centrist, but weren't really a. a 
you know, liking what the liberals were selling. Um, she's, she's hoping that those people who may have been uncomfortable with the Greenbelt decisions, may have been uncomfortable with the Ontario Place decisions, may have been uncomfortable with the, uh, you know, provinces uh, push to introduce more private operation within the public health care system. And, and those who maybe didn't like what the government did with QP uh, back in uh, 2022 w- with uh, imposing a contract, they're hoping that there's enough of that support that's eroded from the progressive conservatives uh, that she'd be able to kind of pull that over into the big tent liberal party. But as you mentioned, I mean, there's so much time between now and in November is when the party actually votes. December is when they announce um, that, you know, she's she's going to have a, a long, tough road ahead of her, as as do all of the other candidates. I think the, the the report. I think it was an abacus report, wasn't it? Earlier this week that you were reporting on uh, that talked yes. about that. That, uh, that you know the Ford uh, PCs had. A, I think it was about an eight or nine point lead over well the Liberals who were just barely ahead of the NDP. But Doug Ford's personal approval ratings are still in the tank. Uh, the, they seem to like the the party. Well, maybe you know <laughs> just because of, of the fact that you know they're getting what they get, and the, and the other guys don't have a leader yet. But uh, there's not a lot of love for Doug Ford right now. Maybe because of the green belt and some of the other things that are going on right now. How vulnerable does that make the PCs, though? Well, the PCs are would be especially vulnerable in the 905, and I think that's what this is ultimately all about for a lot of them. Right? In, in order to win. Uh, the election, you have to have that key 905 support. And I'm talking about, I mean, the entire 905 belt stretching from Durham up to York region um, and, and west to uh, Mississauga and Branton. But but ultimately, I mean, there are 12 seats in uh, Mississauga and Brampton that Bonnie Crombie told me that she'd be fairly certain that she'd be able to win. Progressive conservatives seem to be a little bit more nervous about her than you know, any of the other candidates in this in this race. And, and, and you're right. I mean, according to Angus Reid, you know, Premier Doug Ford's personal approval ratings haven't really um, increased since the last election. In fact, they've taken uh, a pretty big hit. He's one of the, you know, least popular premiers in, in all of the uh, Canadian Federation, currently standing at about 33% support. The only two people who he, have, he has behind him are, you know, the premier of New Brunswick and the premier of Manitoba. Even Danielle Smith, according to uh, Angus Reid, has greater popularity than Premier Doug Ford just coming off of that election. So, uh, you, you know, there is a bit of a vulnerability. But for Premier Ford, I mean, we've seen it happen now in two successive elections, right? In 2018, that was a given. The PCs were going to win. But in 2022, I mean, he came off of a really difficult pandemic. He had, you know, approval ratings up and down all over the chart. He'd made some controversial decisions in 2019, cut a lot of things that people were upset about, and he won an even larger majority. So there is a lot of strength in that progressive conservative brand. And I think the premier is is banking on, on that support uh, in a third election. But, you know, Crombie could be the key for the Liberals to stopping a three-peat for Doug Ford. But in that same Angus Reid poll that you were just referencing, uh, the the one that jumped out at me is, I think it was something like 74% of the people polled said they thought there should be a change in government in the next election. Uh, so you, you got to wonder just, you know, where people's heads are at right now. And, and, and you know, maybe that, that 74% is made up of those people that were ticked off about the Greenbelt policy and, and some of the other things like that. And, and I know we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves here because the election's not for a long, long time. 
and uh, we haven't even decided on who's on the roster right now before we start going into battle. But it's it's always interesting to see just where they are on this, and the fact that that, that uh, Nate Erskine Smith uh, immediately right after her announcement started going after her about housing and about uh, flip flopping and you know what's she going to do with the green belt kind of indicates that uh, she's pretty much got front runner status as far as they're concerned too. She does. She does. But the Greenbelt comments yesterday were really interesting. Bonnie Crombie yeah. basically said that she'd be open to um, swapping out lands of the Greenbelt as long as the, those lands are requested by municipalities to swap out and or municipalities agree. And those lands are what she calls white belt lands. White belt lands are something where they, they exist on the edge of the green belt. They're developable lands, but, you know, they haven't really gotten to them yet. She believes that there might be white belt lands or developable lands within the green belt that may have been there by accident. So, that, I mean, those comments, given, given the Liberal Party's um, opposition to the province's green belt plans, you know, it, it, it is quite stark to hear Bonnie Crombie also kind of say, yeah, she'd be open to looking at land swaps with the green belt when, you know, there's been so much outrage and furor around the government's decision. Um, it gives the progressive conservatives something to point to, to say, look, even Bonnie Crombie agrees with our position. Um, and, and it definitely has created a bit of a stir in the Ontario Liberal Party. So you've got you've got two gaffes here uh, where she said she would move the party to the center right. And that she too would potentially be open to land swaps with the green belt, and taken together for those dyed in the wool liberals, they're kind of looking at Crombie, going, "Who are you exactly? Are you a you know a, a, a true liberal, or are you a bit of a conservative liberal?" I, I think people are trying to determine exactly who she is. Um, but I'll tell you this: I mean, last night she had a few hundred people at that event. She's got a lot of big name, old school liberals behind her. Some of those who were. You know, instrumental in helping Dalton McGinty and Kathleen Wynne uh, get into into government and office, and so she's got you know big name support behind her. She can raise a lot of money. She's got that front runner status right now. She's got name recognition. Now the question is whether she's got the ground game to convince people from you know Western Ontario to Eastern Ontario and Northern Ontario, not just the 905, to actually put her name on that ballot. And that's what's yet to be seen. But you just touched on, I think, one of the key elements and maybe the key element that liberals are going to have to get their heads around between now and December. Uh, you know, do you want somebody who may be philosophically aligned with how you think the liberals should be or do you want to win? And that may be the choice they're going to have to make. And, you know, so I'm, I'm sure where she's going to come from from here on in is I can beat this guy. I don't think the other people can. And that, that's going to be a pretty strong point. Right. And, and look, I mean, just because you're the front runner doesn't mean that it's a, it's a guarantee, right? Let's oh, no. take a look at Peter McKay as an example. Peter McKay yeah. had run against Aaron O'Toole in the federal conservative uh, leadership. Everyone saw him as the front runner. Everyone saw him as almost a prime minister in waiting. And look at how that turned out, right? It, it, and it's happened here in Ontario as well. I mean, Dalton McGuinty went from, I believe, like the fifth ballot to uh, the first when he was elected. Kathleen Wynne was in a very tight competition with Sandra Pupatello. Um, you know, it doesn't always mean that because you're you're the front runner, you're going to win. And even the Ontario progressive conservatives have seen it. Remember, Christine Elliott ran in two successive leaderships and she lost both times, once to Patrick Brown and once to Doug Ford, even though, you know, she was seen as having a lot of support within the Ontario progressive conservative party. These leadership races are anybody's guess. And so, you know, one question for Mississauga residents is, are, are we going to have a by-election for a mayor or is our mayor going to come back to us after, after December? That is... 
that is, you know, yet to be seen. But just because you're in the front uh, doesn't always mean that you're going to remain in the front, especially as your opponents now for Crombie just try to, you know, put every piece of mud they can find on you uh, to make your chances that much more uh, less, less great than what they already are. Colin, I know you got to run, but just one question. You just brought it up there. Is she going to stay on as mayor all, th- all the way through this process? I asked her this yesterday, and she said she will remain as mayor for as long as she can. If, if, if things get a little bit uh, tricky or the competition gets a bit, uh, you know, too involved, that she might have to take a leave of absence. Uh, she, she feels, because I asked her this, if, if she feels like she'd be serving the residents of Mississauga well, uh, she, she believes she can. Yesterday, she was the head of a city council meeting. So she believes she, she can do the job, uh, both jobs. Uh, but, I, I mean, ultimately... You know, we'll, we'll, we'll have to see over the next uh, few weeks and months how that goes. Colin DeMello, of course, uh, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global. Always a pleasure, Colin. Thanks so much for this today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Remember the old days when you were in school, you'd get the report card, the dreaded report card. But it was supposed to be an honest evaluation of, of where you were, what you've learned and, and what you've been able to perform, right? Well, politicians get those too. And uh, and they may not like the stuff that's included in those, but nonetheless, it has to happen. Well, uh, reading through an uh, op-ed piece in theconversation.com uh, the other day, uh, this is a basically a report card and evaluation on the first five years of Doug Ford's government as the premier of the province of Ontario. And uh, it's entitled Doug Ford at Five Years, Selling Out Ontario's Future to Please the Well-Connected. The author of the piece is our guest right now. He is uh, Mark Winfield, who is a political scientist and professor of environmental studies with York University. Professor, thank you so much for the time. Great to, uh, for you to join us on the show today. Well, thank you. Good morning. Well, you've articulated, I think, put on paper what a lot of us have been wondering anecdotally for the last little while. Uh, but where is this government taking us as a province? And as you point out in the piece, uh, a lot of people are very concerned about the direction we're going because a lot of what's going on here are things that he said he would never do. And bingo, he's starting to do them now. Yeah, no, well, there, there are many dimensions of that. Probably where this is most prominent has been around land use planning and the green belt. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but there are other areas as well that you can point to in terms of where the where the government has gone. Well, and one of the things that I have found troubling, and a, a number of other folks have too, is is as you say, it's it's been a shift in responsibilities. I mean, one of the most important things uh, that we have as a tool, even at the municipal level, of course, is not just that we're going to grow, but how we're going to grow and where we're going to grow, and it seems on a, on a very systemic way of doing things, a systematic way of doing things, uh, this government has basically taken over control of that whole process and taken an awful lot of that authority and power from municipal governments. Well, no, that is that has been one of the defining features of, of the government. And we, we saw that prior to last summer's election, uh, but in many ways those trends accelerated dramatically um, through the last fall and then into the spring as well with Bill 23 and now Bill 97, that, that they are really a, a provincial kind of takeover of uh, the planning system and a very, very top-down approach being taken. And then one of the things that I highlight, though, is is that um, what's also a defining feature of this is is uh, the decisions that are now being made are, are very clearly in favor of development interests and indeed 
they're very strong suggestions, development interests with with very close connections to the government. So it's not that there's there's some rationality here, quite the opposite. It seems uh, this is a provincial takeover for the purpose of helping friends. Which is included in the title. And and this is not a new problem, especially at that level, as you point out, Professor. Uh, there's always been a, 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 a challenge, I guess, for any government, previous governments here in Ontario, to find that balance. You know, I mean, we, uh, we had the Ontario Municipal Board previous to, to the, the, the tribunals that we have now. Uh, and if there was a disagreement, yeah, they'd, they, the, the developer would present their case, the municipality or the individual, I guess, uh, could present theirs, and there'd be some evaluation and a decision made. Uh, but instead of trying to find that balance, it looks as if the Ford government has simply said, uh, we're just going to tip the scales and, and, and give everything over to these people because we need things built. And, and I, you know, they want to pretty much eliminate any impediment to that, don't they? They seem to. And, and indeed, one of the things that people have pointed out who are, who are, you know, within the planning process, of course, is that this also seems largely unnecessary, that there were large supplies of land um, already zoned for development by municipalities, and indeed uh, more than enough housing uh, in the approval process, and indeed approved already. Um, so it looks very much like uh, these start to look just like outright interventions um, in response to the specific asks from particular developers. And indeed, we've seen this very clearly in the ministerial zoning orders, and then also in the removals of land from the Greenbelt. But there, again, doesn't seem to be any kind of a, a, a rationality to what's happening. Um, it simply seems to be tipping the scales in favor of, of those who seem to have the necessary connections um, to the government. But as you point out, Professor, there were checks and balances in place. Um, for instance, if there was a development that was going to be somewhat controversial, oftentimes municipalities would rely on, on the conservation authority in that area. Give us a comment on that. What's the impact going to be on, on environmental issues in sensitive areas? Uh, well, they pretty well, much gutted conservation areas now. Yeah, uh, this is a major one. Um, the the short answer is we don't know entirely, but the role of conservation authorities in the planning process has been weakened very, very dramatically. Um, there have been pressures you know, basically limiting their ability to say no in relation to development that would affect ecologically significant areas like wetlands. But there are also very significant implications around hazard lands and floodplains as well. So there's uh, beyond the, the environmental dimensions of this, there are also uh, public safety dimensions to this in terms of where development should be allowed to happen. In some ways, we're, we seem to be in a, a process of unlearning everything we learned in the preceding 70 years, of which the conservation authorities can be a component of that, about where you shouldn't do development. Um, and laying the groundwork, I think, for, for some very, very, not just ecologically bad outcomes, but, but bad outcomes from a public safety perspective as well. You know, the irony here, I know you're aware, but just to remind our listeners, is this whole concept, for instance, of conservation authorities and designation of sensitive lands and wetlands was done by a previous conservative government. It, you know, this is not some right-wing ideology. You know, Bill Davis and John Robarts were conservative politicians, uh, and they saw, they saw the importance of this. They established this. They put those checks and balances in. And, I, I, you know, okay, the Greenbelt thing was done by the McGinney government, 
but the first chair of the Greenbelt Council was was a conservative. It was Dr. Bob Elgy, who served in the Davis government. Uh, the last one who resigned because of some of the Ford policies, of course, was David Crombie, who was a conservative cabinet minister in the Mahoney government, a former mayor of Toronto, too. So this is not along political lines. This is really just kind of some adherence to an ideology, isn't it? It, it seems, although I, I think calling ideologies is perhaps an exaggeration, but yeah. absolutely that 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 the the role of conservation authorities and the the planning rules evolved really from 1946 onwards. Then Hurricane Hazel sort of reminded us, you know, why you don't build on floodplains and hazard lands, um, and those things cut across party lines. Here, it, it really does seem to be a response to whatever uh, the development industry complains about or doesn't like, uh, their wish is granted. And that can't make for very, very good decisions in the long term. Um, it just seems to be kind of unanchored from any, any notion of, of the public interest or, or evidence in terms of whether or not the choices we're making are very good ones or not. Let's. I, I know we're limited on time here, but I want to. I want to just dovetail into your thing about bad choices because and the land use thing is a big part of this, and I'm glad you spent so much time on that in in the, in the op-ed piece. But about bad choices, I mean, that started almost the minute that this government took office, didn't it? I mean, when they challenged the federal government, first of all, they blew out the cap-and-trade program that the previous Liberal government had put in place, uh, and that cost them revenue uh, and, and investment that was already coming to the province. Uh, and then, of course, when, when their, their their challenge fails, they, they pursue that further by trying to appeal this. They're spending millions and millions of dollars defending bad decisions. Same thing, of course, with the, the wage cap they put on, on public sector workers. They've lost that battle, and it's, it's costing you and me as taxpayers millions of dollars to fight what many people think is a frivolous battle yeah no this is there are there are many examples of this where where decisions that have been made um sort of on the spur of the moment uh are coming back to haunt in different ways and and effectively what's going on i mean this is what happens when you don't necessarily think through very carefully the consequences of what you're doing um, is that costs come back to haunt you, uh, be they around you know, the direct costs and the lost revenues around the cap and trade system. But of course, the, the bigger problem that the Auditor General and the Environmental Commissioner have pointed to, of course, is that, that you're also embedding costs down the road in terms of, of the longer term impacts of climate change and, and other challenges which will have to be met by the province. And effectively, it's making it you're embedding these these costs and liabilities down the road, um, which at some point we're going to have to pay for uh, in terms of the damage and repairing damage and, and dealing with the consequences. So it's it's at many layers uh, that this process of, of sort of the the consequences of bad decisions come are going to come back and haunt us in, in multiple dimensions. Well, and I know the last paragraph in your piece here, I think kind of encapsulates a lot of the concern here. It's, it's the government's pretty much established here a pay for play uh, theory as far as their policy making is concerned. It seems to be based on who's supporting them, how much money they are sending to the government to, to the PC party rather to support, as opposed to using sound principles, either fiscal or or planning principles, etc., like that. That seems to have been shoved aside, and they're simply looking at donor lists to decide who's going to get the ear of the premier. Yeah, I'm. It's 
It, it may or may not be that simple. I mean, there's certainly implications uh, out there that there are connections, although I think at times it also is just, um, you know, a, a responsive and uncritical responsiveness to the right kinds of voices with the right with the message framed in the right way um, as well, that that if if you you look and sound right um, and have a message that's framed in the right way to the province, um, you can get what you want. And and the filters that we built over the years to precisely prevent that kind of thing happening um, are essentially being swept away. And that seems to me the, the deeper problem. I mean, there are certain, say there's suggestions that there are, there are connections, uh, you know, and donations, but I, I think in some ways it's, it's deeper than that. It's, it's a, a deeper set of questions about how the government understands its role and who it, who it responds to. And, and what you're seeing is, is very much the sort of outputs from that kind of an approach to decision-making. If you're, the right person saying things in the right way, you get what you want, whether it makes sense or not. Uh, it's a great piece. I'll direct people to theconversation.com, and, and, and they can read the article in its entirety. Professor, thank you for, so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Oh, great. Thank you very much. That's uh, Professor Mark Winfield from York University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Subject that we've brought up time and time again uh, in the last little while uh, about what the Bank of Canada is doing uh, to try to beat inflation. And as we've said, there seems to be a pre-described formula in just about every economics textbook. Uh, oh, you know how you beat inflation? Just jack interest rates up. Uh, yeah, there's going to be some collateral damage, but it's all for the, the better. Well, I disagree with that, first of all, philosophically. And even now, because of what Tip Macklin is doing at the Bank of Canada, uh, seeing that it's not doing what he thinks it's doing anyway. Well, there's a fabulous piece in the Toronto Star that talks about that. And basically, I think the title is uh, very, very telling. It says, workers don't need to lose jobs to fight inflation. Uh, Here, here. It's about time somebody spoke up and said that. And our next guest has done just that. Armin Yalnizian, of course, is an economist and Atkinson fellow at the Future of Workers. And uh, she joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about the article. And uh, first of all, Armin, it's great to have you back here. Uh, what you seem to have done here is, is say what people are thinking, but nobody seems to have the courage to actually speak up and talk about the fact that, and maybe ask the question, uh, do you know what you're doing, Tiff Macklin? I, I'm not so sure he does. Oh, he knows what he's doing. He's doing the same thing he's always been doing. When I interviewed him in November, um, there's a great story actually in the star of uh, the, uh, the, the story behind the interview um, it, which came out in a series that I wrote for the star called Inflation Nation that mm-hmm. came out over the course of November and December. And when I, uh, he, he had just read the second installment, which said some prices go up, some prices go down. The prices that are going down are not coming down because of what the bank is doing. And, you know, will, will his strategy work uh, given what is driving the prices that are going up, up? And he looked at me and said, what do you mean, will the strategy work? He, he said, the stra- it's the plan. The plan always works. And in truth, you can track a very straight line between what bank rates do and what prices do since the 1980s, but not before that. And prices have gone up and down before that. And it's unclear to me 
that what they did in the 80s and 90s was the reason why prices went down. But my God, we had a lot of collateral damage in the form of very, very high unemployment rates. And I don't think the pain is justified for what they are able to achieve. Well, and, and I, I guess, as, as you mentioned in the piece, uh, you can extend that argument to say, are they even responsible for the reduction in the, that we've seen in inflation? They love to pat themselves on the back, but uh, you present evidence that said not necessarily so. It, it, well, exactly. The prices that have come down, the price that has come down the most is the price that went up the most initially, which was uh, fuel prices. And mm-hmm. that was because of Russia's invasion of China. I'm uh, sorry. <laughs> Maybe I'm projecting yeah, that, that, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. <laughs> I think that's tomorrow's headline, but anyway. <laughs> uh, but, you know, when that happened uh, and we started sanctions on Russia, that changed what is coming onto the market with respect to global supplies. Same thing happened to global supplies of wheat exports, fertilizer and oil seeds, all of which, like that whole Russia-Ukraine area, is the cradle for a huge amount of global exports, particularly to the poorest countries in the world. And when that supply dried up, it meant prices of those things jacked up. So, you know, fast forward a year and a few months later, and fuel prices are still 50% higher than they were before the war started. Uh, Food prices for things like bread are still about 30% higher and things like cooking oil are still about 50% higher. Oh, no, I think I'm off. I think it's about a third higher. But, you know, these are very high price hikes for very basic foods. And nothing the bank does is going to change that. Nothing the bank does is going to change our supply of fruits and vegetables with respect to any kind of fresh, fresh produce uh, responses to drought or floods or fires. And we're seeing more of those baked into the system every year. So, you know, we're heading into a period, Bill, where it's exactly the reverse of the period in which the plan always worked. In the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, China went from being an economic third world nation to being the ox that pulled everybody's cart by becoming the manufacturing workshop for the world. So we could all have cheap stuff. In the 70s, 80s, and 90s, we had the boomers entering the labor market in record numbers, not only because we had a baby boom after the Second World War, but because girls thought they were just as good as boys. And in that same period, we developed amazing global supply chains that uh, really reduced costs, including shipping costs. All of those things are in exact reverse mode. For us to get back down to 2% inflation and only do it through bank rate uh, moves means that we will be beaten over the head and shoulders for years to come and probably still not get to 2%. Well, you mentioned in the piece, in your conversation with Macklem back when you were doing the, the research for those pieces, he's basically saying more people are going to have to lose their jobs for me to do my job properly. I mean, what kind of twisted logic is that? Well, the logic is the logic of monetary policy on which every rich nation has relied since the 1980s. It is very much in keeping with the government should get out of the way. We should let markets do the job through price signals. And the biggest price signal is the cost of borrowing money. 
It, it, that's the theory. As I was saying, you know, that's the 100%. textbook theory. Yeah, uh, yeah, 100%. You make it cheaper to borrow, more businesses do more things. You make it harder to borrow, more people lose their jobs, and there's less spending power, which means you're, you know, basically putting salt on the tail of the economy so it can't fly quite as fast. Yeah, people will still spend money, but especially when your policy rate goes up, which is what the bank has done more aggressively than at any point in history. Uh, we've seen now nine rate hikes in 15 months, and we've gone from 0.25% to 4.75%. Last time we saw that was in March of 2001, 22 years ago. So when that sort of thing happens, more and more people have to spend more on housing. More people lose their jobs and more people spend more money on housing. 70% of the market, actually 72% of the market, is affected by these rate hikes because about 35% have a mortgage. 35% of all households in Canada have a mortgage. 37% rent. There's a, a, you know, a fairly sizable group of people that don't have a mortgage. But the majority of Canadian households are affected by rate hikes, because when mortgage prices go up, and they are the number one fastest growing thing in the basket that we measure through the consumer price index, they are 28.5% higher this month than they were the same time this year. Uh, Sorry, the same time last year. So that's the absolutely fastest growing component of the inflation index. And when that happens, more people are really in trouble. There are more insolvencies. There are more ways that people who over-leveraged when we had free money and bought a lot of houses, they're turning those rental houses into short-term rentals because they can make twice, sometimes three times as much money on the short-term rental market. So we're pulling out more affordable rental stock than we're building. That means both renters and owners are spending more money on housing. That means they have less money for food, for gas, for everything else. And so that means there's less spending. And less spending means less upward pressure on prices. Do you know what the second fastest growing element in the uh, consumer price index is? It's what? travel. So we're protecting people. You know, from, we're protecting, we're, we're making people go hungry so that we don't inconvenience people who have so much money in, in their budgets that they can go traveling. And I get it. I want to travel, too. But, you know, there's a lot of people that are going hungry right now. Uh, and again, as the, the message we're getting here from the bank seems to be, uh, OK, there's lots of you working. Employment numbers are fabulous. And we're spending money. You know, uh, we're, we're actually putting money back into the economy. We're, we're promoting small businesses and supporting small business. And apparently that's a bad thing now. Uh, that's what the bank's basically telling us. I mean, it's no wonder people are, are spinning right now thinking, what, what, what's going on here? This is Well, actually, this- you, you raise a great point that they think that we're the hottest. And can I just say, we have got the second lowest inflation in the G7, which are the biggest country, uh, biggest economies, biggest mm-hmm. advanced economies in the world, we're second only to Japan, and Japan's food prices are going up faster. We are the second. Uh, we we are the second only to the U.S. in terms of our pace of growth. Like we're growing really fast, and our and the the fact is one of the reasons we're growing really fast is we added a million people to the pot last year. Like when you add a million people, you've got more consumers and you've got more workers. 
for them to say the economy is too hot, well, I, I guess they should be talking to the federal government about the policy for, you know, opening up the floodgates when businesses say we can't find enough workers. You know, it, like it's just there's a, a complete lack of coherence across both uh, government policies and central bank policies at the moment, where we're actually being asked to work harder and faster, and we all want to do it. We want to get past the pandemic. We want to get back to so-called normal. And we've got all sorts of policies to help grow the economy and do all of that. And then we've got a bank saying, wait, that's too much. You're being too successful. Um, and we need to slow things down because inflation hasn't come down far enough. Inflation is not going to come down as fast as anybody thought uh, because it, bank rates cannot deal with the things that are pushing up prices, save for travel costs. That's the only thing that by constraining people's ability to spend money, you might be able to cool the price and give supply a chance to catch up. That's, that's the formula, they say. If you cool demand far enough, you give supply a chance to catch up and prices won't go up as fast. Okay, well, great. But there's very few things in that basket that fall in that category. Well, I've got you, and I'm so glad you've got some time for us here, I mean, because I always like to get your perspective on this. I, I almost feel, as a consumer, uh, like there's a grift going on here. You know, we're going to jack interest rates up because it's going to help the economy. Governments are flush with money now. Uh, the Ontario government is flush with money. They're making more than they ever thought they were going to make, and it's because of the increased uh, revenue they're getting from higher interest rates. Same thing with the federal government. And then there's the banks. Don't get me started. We've only got a three-hour show, so I can't get into all of this stuff with the <laughs> banks. But why are people – You listen, you've probably forgotten more about economics than most of us will ever know because you've been studying this for the longest time. Why do banks have to raise interest rates on somebody who's renewing their mortgage? That's not new money. They're not spending money. They're trying to pay back the money they've already borrowed. And the bank is saying, no, you're going to have to pay more for it now. They're making a ton of money at the same time. Everybody's in on it, and we're the ones that are getting screwed around here. Well, the whole point of raising rates is to make things more expensive. Because if you yeah. make things more expensive, then you spend less, right? That's the whole point. But just to, to go back to your co comment about uh, government coffers being flush, the one set of uh, books that isn't flush is the federal government because they literally had our back during the pandemic. Yep. Ontario is flush. Alberta is flush. Alberta is flush because of what happened to global oil prices. Uh Ontario is flush because we've got so many people working now, you know, like more people working now than we did this time last year. And that's a bad thing, right? <laughs> like it's, Apparently, so, yeah. You know, I, I, I recognize the, you know, the quantum find yourself in is trying to understand how do we get prices to go lower when you're making prices higher, right? That your solution to make prices go lower is to make prices go higher. And weirdly, it is a lot because if you're spending more and more of your budget on a single item that it is, is the biggest item in your budget, cost, and that's true whether you're rich or poor, whether you're an owner or a renter, if you're spending more and more, you really squeeze out other spending, which does take pressure off of you know, inadequate supply. Uh, but, you know, this is the thing. They can't do anything about the supply side. They can only do something about the man side. So it's going to hurt you. You don't ask for more. So, you know, apparently in order to let supply catch up and it will eventually do that, but the price is so high that we are looking at still elevated rates of inflation 
and in my view, really unnecessary, very targeted job losses that are, you know, the people that are going to be doing what the bank wants have got lots of money. The other people are going to go into insolvency. They're going to go into bankruptcy. They are going to go hungry. They, you know, asking people to spend more on the basics and they don't even have a job is just cruel and unusual punishment in my view. Uh, as I say, I, I, we could spend the whole three hours on, on this right now because I just I, I I'm very very upset because I see what's happening and you know they don't want us to connect the dots they don't want us to understand that okay because there isn't affordable housing available uh, more people are relying on rents rents are sky high right now some people can't afford that and now we have tent encampments and we're not talking about how do we get people out of those tents and put a roof over their head we're talking about just it's going to be a larger number where are we going to put them now. I mean, yeah. we're, we're, we're caving into this whole thing right now. And as you point out in the piece, it's not as complex as the government wants us to think it is. And the solutions aren't as complex either. Uh, I wish no, we had more time on this. One. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I got a couple. I got a few seconds left. Go ahead. Okay. I just wanted to say that if we had a federal government that was building housing while this is happening, if we had a federal government that fixed EI for the looming recession, if we had a federal government that actually made good on a mandate letter promise, for a school food program so that kids didn't go hungry as their parents are spending more and more on housing and less and less on food, we would not have a fix to inflation, but we would have a fix to the pain of inflation. And we would actually reduce the amount of increase in housing prices. It's like it's a hands-off-the-wheel approach that drives me crazy for the governments, all of the governments at every level. Exactly. Uh, we'll use that as the last word. Uh, always a pleasure, Armin, having you on the program. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you, Bill. Take care. Armin Yelnizian, uh, who's an economist and an Atkinson fellow, and uh, you can read her piece in the uh, the Toronto Star webpage. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.